can forget that this work of healing our own self is intimately connected to every relationship that we have. It is how, you know, we so are so quick to look to how do I heal the marriage or how do I heal the kid or how do I heal the friendship? Well, one component of that is how do I heal myself so that I can show up in this relationship in a different way. Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. I have been hoping to interview today's guest for a while now, like maybe a couple of years. So I am very excited to finally introduce you to Dr. Allison Cook. Allison is a psychologist. She's a podcast host herself. She's the author of two books, including the recently released The Best of You. And I will admit that I was a little tempted to turn this into a personal therapy session for myself. And I did ask a lot of questions that I really wanted to understand for my own sake, but hopefully I was also able to ask questions that will be helpful to all of us as we learn how to bring healing into our lives and do that so that we can bring health and wholeness out into our relationships with God, with our families, with our communities, with one another. I'm really glad you're here. This is a good one. I'm here today with Allison Cook, and I have been a fan, Allison, of your work for a few years now. I told you this when we were talking before, but I first heard you uh, when you were interviewed on the Bible for Normal People podcast, which was years ago, mm-hmm. and it's really been a uh, desire of mine to be able to talk to you in person, so I'm really glad that you wrote a new book, and we get to talk about it here today. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad you you had me on. Thank you. Absolutely. So I just read your new book. And for those listeners who have not yet bought it, which I actually I really do highly recommend. um, It's called The Best of You. And it just came out. And I thought just by way of introduction to who you are and to the book, what I thought I'd ask is if you could talk about some of the personal experiences that you had that led to writing this particular book. So introduce us to you. But give us a little bit of the like how you got to this book in particular. Yeah, there's sort of the 20 year journey and then the two year journey. So the 20 year, Mm -hmm. right? The 20 years is I'm a a psychologist. I grew up in a Christian background, knew a lot about God, knew a lot about the Bible and knew absolutely nothing about myself and about how Mm. to be an adult in the world. (laughs) Mm. And so I went to graduate school to study counseling and went on to get my PhD in psychology and really um, was kind of shocked by at some point in my early thirties by like, I was a therapist, you know, it's kind of the cliche. I was helping other people. And I was like, I don't have a clue who I am and wasn't really taught how to do that work of becoming a self. Um, and in fact, yeah. in, in my case was in many ways taught that that wasn't something we should focus on, right? We should only focus on other people. We should always keep the, the, the focus on others. So um, my own kind of had to confront my own codependency because, of course, that breeds codependency. I had to confront my own uh, fawn technique, my fawn response. If we're talking trauma language, and really, you know, take time to to heal myself. Um, and then 
so that was kind of the genesis behind. I've always been fascinated by, by this idea of self. You know, I studied Carl Rogers and I studied Kierkegaard and I studied all these people in graduate school and I just couldn't get enough of this. Like, this is a real thing. You can have a self, Jung, you know, <laughs> um, but I wasn't taught it, you know. So what does that mean? How do you become a self? How do you become a person? Uh, my favorite book was uh, On Becoming a Person. I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a unique idea. <laughs> um, and now, of course, oh, no. it's everywhere, this idea of true self. You know, we you know, a lot, and, it, and it's been around forever. You know, so many people have been talking about it for centuries. Now they're sort of, it's kind of almost trendy, but even right. that sometimes now is like, but, but what is it really? So that's kind of the big picture behind the book. And then um, two years ago, as I was beginning to write this book and really unpack some of the toxic messages I'd received and um, what kind of putting my finger on and really being able to name, I had a stroke. I had this medical crisis and it was just, nuts because then I went in, I'm fine, but I went into this whole new kind of period of recovering, of healing myself. Um, So that those are the two contexts in which the book was born. And I want to ask you like 17 questions about both of those contexts. (laughs) Um, And so hopefully we'll get to that. But I, I wanted to start actually just with that um, experience of having the stroke, because that's where the book starts. And I'm curious, because later on in the book, you write about our bodies as a guide to healing. And I'm curious to hear about that in general, but also in what way was the stroke your was the stroke of your body guiding you towards healing? Like, what, do you see that as a manifestation of like the previous twenty years or something like that? Or, well, I mean, how do you how do you think about your body in that regard yeah. when it comes to healing? That's a great question. No, I don't. I, do, I think they're they were unrelated. I think what happened to me medically. Um, you know, was, was unrelated in my case. I do think some health conditions are absolutely related to trauma and there's certainly a lot out there. That was not my case. Um, it was more of a metaphor, I think in my case, because what was, what was fascinating about it was I couldn't, the the cues that my brain was sending, we we take for granted, right. That our, our brain says, move finger, pick up a cup. We we don't think about that consciously. You know, you don't conscious, I'm not conscious right now going, nod your head so that, mm-hmm. you know, Amy, Julie, you know, it, um, and so what, what happens when you have a stroke or in my case, the, the blood clot, I couldn't like my brain was sending the cues, but it wasn't connecting right to my hand. Yeah. So I, I use it metaphorically. It was like, Oh my gosh, like we take for granted these cues that we send ourselves. Um, and in my case, all of a sudden what happens when that gets severed, Yeah, you know, and you can't do the thing. And, and so more what I'm talking about just in the emotional spiritual realm is we're getting cues all the time. Our emotions are sending us cues. Our anxiety responses are sending us cues. Mm -hmm. Our nervous system is sending us cues. Our bodies are exhausted. That's a cue that we need to pay attention to our soul, to our spiritual and emotional health. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that one of the things that I think in what you just said on your big picture introduction and then throughout the book is that you've got this Christian perspective that you have not abandoned, right? right. It wasn't like you got to graduate school and you said, oh my gosh, I guess all that church stuff is out the door and all I need now is, you know, these kind of psychotherapists. But you also said, wait a second, why was I not taught any of this when I was growing up within the church? And what does the Bible have to say about this? And are they integrated? And I think especially for people who have grown up with some sort of church or religious background, 
Um, there are lots of those types of questions as we encounter modern psychotherapy. And you write a lot about this and especially even your title, right? The best of you, um, becoming the best version of you can, at least in certain circles, sound like becoming selfish or ignoring what, you know, Jesus means when he says, die to yourself or take up your cross and follow me. And you do a lot to unpack that. So, um, I won't ask you to give all of it away right here, but I'd love for you to just explain why becoming our best selves is not an act of selfishness. Yeah, and like I how, how do those things fit together? I think that some of the misconceptions in our culture, right, is there is this sort of superficial veneer of the best you, which is, it's all about me. I, I'll do me, you know? And I'm like, well, no, that's not exactly it. The best of who we are is deeply relational, is deeply mm-hmm. connected to the welfare of other people. Um, and so I, I kind of break it down as a selfhood again, as I understood it from psychology, there's this, there's this ground and, and I use the, the example of Jesus, which again, Jung talks about Jesus as the archetype of the self, mm-hmm. meaning Jesus had a strong sense of self. He wasn't yeah. a doormat. Mm-hmm. If he was selfless, it was always because there was a greater purpose. It came from strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's these two extremes where it's like selfishness, which is, it's all about me. I don't care about other people. I just do me. And that's not healthy emotionally or spiritually. And then there's selflessness, which is, it's never about me. I'll just be passive. I won't ever insert myself. And that's not healthy spiritually or emotionally either. And right. to me, the true self is this idea of become the self that God made us to become. And that inherently goes hand in hand with how we navigate well relationships with other people. That's a wonderful, succinct, um, yeah, summary that you really do spell out in greater detail in the book. But I, I love the way you put that. And that was part of why this book was a challenging read for me. Like it was wonderful. It was inviting. It was important, but it was challenging because you push on some assumptions that I didn't even necessarily knew I had both as a woman and as a Christian, because there's kind of a double layering, I think of cultural assumptions about womanhood, as well as then Christians assumptions about, you know, being selfless or whatever. Um, And then one of the things that came up again and again was the idea of desire Mm. or asking the question, what do I want? And I think for much of my life, I have seen that as a question of um, being selfish. I'm supposed to sacrifice for the self of others, or even just like, I don't have time to think about what I want because other people have so many wants and needs and I'm supposed to be taking care of them. Right. So I really appreciated that. Uh, One of the exercises was to go and write down eight to 10 things that you want and just do it. And it was such a revelatory exercise for me. So thank you for that. But I want to focus in right now and just ask you, like, why is it important for us to ask that simple question? What do I want? And and why is that, again, not a selfish question to be asking? Yeah, because I love that exercise. I've done it myself, too. It's very it's always. And the reason I think it's important is this, especially for women, as you say, is we you know, imagine you're going to dinner. Simple question. Where should we go to dinner? I don't care. What do you Mm -hmm. want? And it's fine to always be the one to, there's nothing wrong. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't compromise. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't, especially if we don't care. But what about when we do care? And that's what I started to notice in myself. Like someone would say, do you want to eat this brownie now? Sure. And I didn't want it. I did not (laughs) want it at that. So I'm like, 
why am I saying yes? Why yeah. I don't want this. No one, I don't need to eat this brownie to make this other person happy. I'm thinking of that example because it was literal. It was like, I remember this day I was stuffed. I had already eaten and I was going to coffee with a friend. And she's like, oh, I really, let's get some brownies. And that was this light bulb moment for me that I was like, okay, great. Let's sure. And I started eating brownies and I was like, I don't, I don't want, want brownies. these brownies. Yeah. And this is a friend. I, I can say, oh, no, thanks. Go ahead. Like, I don't right. have to eat these. So that's what I mean by it's a silly example, but how often do we do that? And and that's where I do think even knowing, and, and so we have to know, we have to know the impulse, how deep that impulse is in so many of us to just immediately jump to whatever the other person wants. Mm-hmm. Sure, there's going to be times where in a bigger thing, like I don't want to move, I'm just making this up. I don't want to move to Chicago, but my whole family is moving to Chicago. Therefore, I have to move to Chicago. At least I know I'm going to do it because it's what's best for the people that I love. But Mm -hmm. I'm also going to honor the part of myself that doesn't want to make that move. And I'm going to work. I'm going to befriend her and I'm going to care about that part of her, that part of Mm -hmm. me. Right. So I think I think when we get to the root of this question, what do we want? It's not always okay. How do I get it? It's how do I honor it? How do I at least honor it, even if I can't get it? And for me, in addition to what you just said, it was also really helpful to recognize, first of all, there are some really good things that I want. I love that. Like, you know, I want to be present to my kids, you know, and like, oh, gosh, that's great. I mean, I really do. I want that. Okay. Is there anything getting in the way of that? Are, am I able to? Am I able to honor that part of me? Like asking some of those questions. And then there were some other things where I was like, gosh, like, I want to lose five pounds. And not like that's a bad want, but I was like, I really do. And I'm not sure I would like be able to say that out loud. And it's good for me to kind of explore, well, where's that coming from? Like, am I, do I need to like start some new regime or do I need to actually be a little more like tender with, you know, post pandemic me <laughs> and, and, and be okay with this being my body, you know? So it was just a really, it was a good exercise for me, not only in terms of getting in touch with desire, but also in terms of getting in touch with, again, that sense of self and who I am in my you know, I don't know, strengths and weaknesses or the things that are really kind of altruistic motivations and the others that might not be and being honest about that just it felt really important to me. Exactly. I love what you just said. There's some things that surprise us that were like, I didn't realize how much I really want that. And that's a really good thing. And I want to bump that up on my priority list. I want to make that happen. And then there's some things I'm recognizing I want. And I'm not sure that's coming from the best of who I am. Mm -hmm. I do want it. There's a part of me that wants it. Yeah. So that's interesting. You know, how do I, you know, how do I be tender with that part of me? Um, You know, we're getting into this whole idea of parenting ourselves. And you think about Mm -hmm. parenting your kids, you know, you know, kids come say, I want this candy bar. And we're like, I get it. You do want that. I'm not (laughs) going to give it to you because you've already had it, you know, but I hear you that you do want it. And that's hard. Yep. And it's hard to right. want something that we have to say either no or not right now to. Mm-hmm. That's how we're starting to be with ourselves. Yeah. And, to, and I love that sense of being gentle and curious, which comes up a lot in your book. Um, I want to go back to something you said early on in this conversation. Um, you talked 
well, you talked about fawn, the fawn response, and I want to mm-hmm. get to that. You write about how we respond to stress and to fear with four different responses. And I would imagine that lots of people have heard fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people maybe fight, flight, and freeze, mm-hmm. right? That like when we encounter a fearful or stressful situation, we fight back, we run away from it, or we just freeze and kind of deer in the headlight type of thing. But I had not ever heard until I actually listened to um, a podcast of yours where you described the fawn So we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's a longer explanation than we might have time for here. But I still wanted to ask you just to give a quick explanation of what the fawn response is Mm -hmm. and how we can learn to respond to fear differently. Because I am someone also who has Mm -hmm. a very uh, robust fawn response (laughs) and I'm I'm needing to see that and and learn from that. Um, and, And you've been helping me in that. So I thought you could maybe say a bit about that. Yeah, I think so. Again, I won't I won't give you the long winded sort of technical explanation of it. But if you think about fight is sort of this activating energy where we're angry, where we're sort of amped up flight is sort of this retreat energy fun what psychologists what therapists are beginning to discover it's a it's a conditioned response and meaning that's what I'm getting at by the the conditioned meaning it happens outside of our conscious awareness. And it's this response to please, to win over, to make whoever's in front of me feel good. And that's what was happening in that moment with my friend. Oh, she wants brownies. Sure. Let's have brownies. Right. Mm. It was conditioned. I, I wasn't even conscious. I was so conditioned to say the thing that the person in front of me wanted to hear that it was almost outside of my conscious awareness. And so that's what we mean by when we talk about it as a nervous system response. Mm-hmm. It's not even something we're aware is happening. Um, and so we're walking through, and that was sort of my story is I was, I was, I became aware through that, that the, in my thirties where I kind of had to become consciously aware of, I don't even realize that I'm in these conversations with people so attuned to what they want from me that I don't even know what I want to say or how mm-hmm. I want to show up or that I'm tired or that I'm this. And that is a conditioned response that is very affirmed, unlike the fight response or even the flight response, where you're right. going to get some external people be like, why are you so angry? Or why are you so passive? The fawn response, you get a lot of affirmation for. Yeah, people like it. And that essentially, though, within that you are likely to lose yourself because you're still simply responding to what other people want or expect or anticipate rather than um, getting in touch with how you are, I don't know, at a deeper level, maybe responding to the situation. Yeah. Pete Walker is the therapist who came up with it. And he really does link it to this idea of codependency. He was the first person to do that. And I talk about that a lot in, in The Best of You, which is essentially we're, we're, we've lost touch with that place inside, which is self, you know, that place inside where we're clear, where we're calm, where we know who we are and we're present. And so if you think about an interaction between two people, you know, right now you're, you're, you're connected to yourself. You're thinking about the next questions you want to ask me. I'm here going, okay, how do I want to respond to that question to, to have a healthy interaction with any two people, two people have to be connected to Mm -hmm. their own selves. Right. I mean, it's, and so what, 
Yeah. And so what happens if we're, we're kind of leaving our, our own self um, in an effort only to please, to win over, it's a survival strategy. It sort of works in the moment to keep us safe. Mm-hmm. It's a way of being camouflaged. That's what we call it, the fawn response. It's like being a camouflage and becoming invisible. I call it the, the cloak of invisibility, right? Of It's the armor of invisibility. It's like, if you don't really see me, if you don't know what I think, if you don't know what I want, if you don't know what my preferences are, you can't hurt me. Um, so, but, but then you also can't know me. <laughs> And you also can't have a genuine, authentic relationship with me because relationships require knowing and they require negotiation and they require two people coming to the table with two sets of opinions and two sets of preferences. And that brings up another kind of, you know, buzzword these days, which is to say vulnerability, which I think in the, you know, kind of Latin root means ability to be wounded. And so there is a sense of I am, I am putting myself in a place where I can be wounded by this other person if I'm coming as a vulnerable, true self. But that also means I'm coming in a place where I could be connected through love and engaging in a true relationship. And it makes me think about there's a um, place where you write about, uh, this is a quote, in order to show up as your true self, you have to face your wounds. And I'm curious about that. So there's this like, your true self is both a place of vulnerability right now. Like Mm -hmm. I know that I could be wounded um, and not I'm looking for that, but mm-hmm. just like I'm kind of being vulnerable enough that that's a possibility. But in what way do we need to face our wounds like from the past in order to know our true self? Like, why is that necessary? Because and you're, you're touching on something so important here. We don't want to expose all our vulnerabilities to everybody. Mm-hmm. We don't. People, some people yeah. are not safe. <laughs> They're just not, yeah. right? I'm a therapist. Right. You know, we, we all know this, yeah. right? But so, therefore, I need to know where I'm tender. I need to know where I'm vulnerable because I ultimately need to care for those parts of me, speak up on behalf of them, and in some cases, protect myself in a healthy way. But I, the I, the sacred I, which is the self, Mm -hmm. me, is aware I'm not, I am not only my wounds. They're a part of me. My vulnerabilities are a part of me. And the more I understand them, the more I can gently protect them when they need protection from certain people, the Mm -hmm. more I can care for them in ways that not even the best person in the universe can care for them because I know them intimately. And this Mm. is really into this deep, deep self-care is such a sort of superficial trite word, but it's the deep work. Now, my first book, I go into the internal family systems model. I touch on it in The Best of You, and and I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's a model of therapy. I read it, but I would assume that most most listeners have not. (laughs) So, So. I mean, right, I'm talking, really, that book gets into the technical yeah, it's great of too. what we're talking it's, it's about. The best readable. of you, I would say the best of you is almost a prequel for it. You know, it's the bigger, mm-hmm. I don't know, you tell me, but it feels to me like the best yeah. of you is almost like the, the entry level. And then it's yeah. like, if you really want to go deep, you're going to go into this, which, but the idea of it is we, we have this family inside of us. We have the vulnerable mm-hmm. parts of us yeah. that we have to be tender with. We have to know, and we don't want to face those parts of us, but they need us. Because if we don't face them, 
we're either going to shove them aside, which is what we do when we're fawning. We're yeah. saying, we're not telling the truth. Now, yep. this is nuanced. When we shove those parts of us aside to please someone, we're not telling the truth in the sense that we're saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, whatever you need. Here's the thing. Just because we face those wounds and we know they're there and we feel tender doesn't mean we go telling, I'm te- you know, telling everybody. It right. means we might in that moment say, tell ourselves, I'm not going to answer that question because that's not safe, but right. I'm doing it consciously. I'm taking, right. I'm doing it intentionally. There's, right. there's a difference. It's a, it's a yeah. consciousness. Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking about the superficial example of your brownie where <laughs> you might become aware that every time I'm with this friend, I walk away feeling stuffed with sugar and you know what? This is the last time I'm going to do that because, or, I, you know, last time we got in a fight over whether or not I would eat the brownie because I said no. So I'm going to say yes this time, but we're not going to go out to coffee anymore. Or, you know, like the, I just, I like that idea. I mean, I appreciate the way you're putting that, that it doesn't mean, therefore, I am bleeding out in front of everyone and, exactly. you know, just bearing my wounds left, right, and center, but rather I'm so conscious of the fact that they exist and hopefully that some of them have actually healed, but they still might be a tender spot, right? Like a, exactly. an ankle that is broken and healed. And you know what? When the weather is cloudy, it hurts. And so I have to take different care of That's it, right. right? So just being that sense of awareness because so many of us, myself included, have spent so much of our adult lives walking around with wounds that we didn't even um, consciously know were present in our bodies, our minds, our spirits. And I really do believe that that is uh, some of the work that, uh, you know, God very much wants to do in and through us is the work of healing those wounds and getting in touch with that true self is a huge part of that. You also become aware. One other thing I talk a lot about in the book is these, these wounds are created typically in our environments as children. And so, and we're drawn. And that's where you also begin to get curious. You're like, why was it hard for me in that setting to say no thank you to the brownies? Is there something about this other person? Is there something about this situation that for whatever reason pulls out? Because there's a reason we develop that coping tactic in our families of origin. Yeah. You know, whether they didn't, our parents didn't see us. They weren't attuned to us. They weren't present to us. So we learned. You know, how not to state a need, how not to state a present, a uh, 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 preference. And sometimes it's not the person. Like in the story, I tell the story of my husband. My husband was like, stop. I don't like this. Stop trying to please me. It's not. Yes. It, and I was like, what? Like that is the, <laughs> like it felt, it felt mean almost when he was saying right. to me, I don't want this part of you. I was like, but this right. is the part of me I, I know how to give. Right. And I get affirmation for, I mean, that's early on in our marriage. My husband was like, could you please just tell me to take out the trash rather than you can yell it at me. That would be better than you saying, so were you thinking you might ever do the job that you agreed that you would do every Tuesday? Or is that something I should be doing? You know? And he was like, oh my gosh, just tell me I've screwed up. Like, so yeah, I think when we've been conditioned to that, those things, I mean, and I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. I just didn't even realize that that's how I (laughs) communicate. That that's a thing that I've learned that. And so again, we just begin to get present and curious when we know our wounds, right? So you, now, you know, now, yeah. you know, there's a part of me that is afraid to ask for something directly. Right. So, and sometimes like with my husband, people who become safe, I've really worked on that and it's a muscle and I've learned to develop it. But 
man, when you go into a new setting and all of a sudden you're at work or you're somewhere and all of a sudden that, that starts to sneak out. And it's like, what's going on here? Is this unsafe? Right. Right. Or am I defaulting? And that leads to discernment, you know, right? right. What we, we know as, you know, the Bible talks so much about wisdom and discernment. Mm. Is this an unsafe environment where I need to be a little careful about asking right. for what I need and want? Or am I being, you know, what's actually happening inside of me? Because then I can take the wheel of my own life and be wise in how I navigate these external situations. Yeah, I love that. And that's really helpful. I'm, um, I want to ask you about something that you call the empathy trap. So this is <laughs> somewhat moving to a different topic, yeah. but they're all, they're all related. I was really keyed in when I read just those words. It was just funny because the day before I had said to a friend, I think empathy is overrated because I was just, I was kind of, well, I was mad because so often in my life, empathy leads me to the dynamic that you describe in the book of because I understand why someone has behaved in a way that hurts me, I then end up not confronting them or more likely in my case, like I just don't even set a boundary to protect myself. I just say, well, I understand why they hurt me. And so I will let that keep happening. And so my empathy or what feels like my empathy gets me stuck in a really codependent pattern of behavior. So I'm curious to hear how like, you know, empathy works when it's in a healthy way. And I'm wondering whether that is any in any way related to a difference between empathy and compassion. Um, Yeah. So if you could just talk about that a bit, I'm I'm thinking about it, I'm learning about it, but I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think so. I do think there's a subtle difference. I think Empathy is a beautiful quality. I think it's a gift. I think um, it's the ability, as we know, to feel with. It's almost like just intuitively you can put yourself into somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with empathy that I describe in the book, especially in the context of setting healthy boundaries, is we can put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's hurting us. I get why they're doing that, right? And so we don't want to do the thing that's going to hurt them by setting a boundary. Right. And so we hurt ourselves, right? And so we have to set healthy boundaries with empathy. We have to differentiate from it. We have to see it. We have to go, I see you there, empathy. Again, self, I, that sacred place inside. How do I want to act on behalf of empathy? Do I want to, am I going to still have to say no and do the hard thing and feel that inside and say, you know, that's where maybe prayer comes in. God, I, I have to distract, I have to disentangle from this situation, extract myself. Mm-hmm. You know, you take over with that person. How am I going to manage my empathy? Not letting my empathy lead me into unhealthy situations. Um, it takes a lot of courage. I talk about, we have to have courage side by side with empathy. I do think compassion when we're self-led, when we're leading from within, compassion is less of a lure. There's something about empathy that pulls us right into those shoes and we can just lose ourselves. I do feel like compassion is the healthy state of, of course I have compassion. Again, thinking about the kid, the child, you know, that's the best analogy to the child who's acting out. Of course I have compassion for you. And I have to say no. I have to stop, you know, we can't do this. Um, There's a a more grounded quality to compassion. 
That I, I have found with my kids, as um, you mentioned that, that I tend to, if they have a hard, uncomfortable, even just an upsetting situation, mm-hmm. my instinct is either to fix the problem mm-hmm. or to be dismissive of the problem mm-hmm. rather than to simply enter into the pain or discomfort of the problem with them. And yeah. obviously as a parent, sometimes it is my job to fix the problem. Yeah. It, probably never my job to dismiss it in the sense of I'm judging you and telling you you shouldn't feel that way, which I have an instinct to do. Like when my daughter is complaining because we haven't been to Disney World three times and -and so-and-so has, I mean, I just want to be like, squash you down, right? (laughs) But I've tried to learn to be like, okay, it is a hard thing Mm -hmm. when you realize that other people have gotten things that you haven't and you want them. Yeah. So I can enter into you, enter into that uh, hardship with you and we're not going to Disney World again. <laughs> like that's all. Absolutely. And true. this is not what our family, you know, is about. And right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can both two things can be true. But I think empathy to your point, that's a great example of compassion, right? I get it. Yeah. It's hard for me when I see other people get things that I don't have and getting back to what I want. And then I have to go, do I re- actually want that? What's mm-hmm. the thing beneath the thing? Um so there's that piece, but empathy can also lure us to, oh, I know I feel so bad for you too. Let's, we will go, you know, and that yes. because you genuinely feel what it feels like in our little body to see all these right. other people getting all these amazing things. And I mean, we can do that too. And that's also not healthy. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I just, I, I appreciated you naming that because yeah. I feel like there's such a buzzword around empathy and as much as I certainly want my kids, I want myself to be able to stand in shoes that are not my own and have that measure yeah. of like feeling on behalf of others. I really want that. But I also have seen that be really destructive in my own life and in other people. Um, and I think it's really, it's a, just an important thing to name that. And then the other thing that you write about that I had not ever seen before and that seemed really important was um, this idea of spiritual codependency. So just to give listeners a little bit of context here, you're writing about a lot about healthy boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. So about kind of overcoming codependency Mm -hmm. with having healthy boundaries within ourselves, families, friendships, but then you also talk about essentially healthy boundaries with God, which is not something that I had, um, had thought about. And the example you gave that was the most of like a wake up call for me was the idea of, um, making decisions. Do I mm-hmm. want God to just tell me what to do and I'll do it? Or like, is that what I'm always looking for? And I have a hard time making decisions unless I'm very clear that that's what God wants for me. Um, that was the one of your examples that really hit me because I do often think, oh gosh, you know, um, until I have some sort of like affirmation or word from the Lord, should I really move forward? So mm-hmm. I'd love for you to just explain the idea of spiritual codependency. And again, that balance of like a relationship and a discernment of between the self and God, again, not becoming mm-hmm. completely independent and saying, I just make my decisions myself, um, but also not being That's codependent right. in a sense of it doesn't matter who I am or what I want. Right. It only matters that I know what the Lord wants, right? Yes, you nailed it. That's it. That You, you exactly nailed that. Those are the two extremes, yeah. right? It's neither... Um, and, and, and I, like you, similarly, it was like, it's not about me. It's all about God. Mm -hmm. And that language is still very prevalent in certain 
communities. And I always just go, well, it is a little bit about you, <laughs> you know, and I think God wants it to be that way. God made you. And for me, the best analogy, the best metaphor is for me becoming a parent as my kids have left the nest. That for me has taught me more about a healthy dependence on God hmm. because you raise your kids to leave you, yeah. right? Yeah. We, equi- we equip our kids because ultimately we want them to thrive on their own right. as independent adults. Yeah. And as, a, as you start to see that happening and it's amazing, you're like, oh my gosh, they're, they're doing yeah. it. It's, it's this crazy weird thing. I think to myself, why would it be any different with God? Mm-hmm. Why would God want to keep me as a five-year-old where he's got to spoon feed me all the lightning bolts? Because God does work that way in our lives sometimes. Why wouldn't he also want to equip me to be wise, mm-hmm. you know, to be smart, to be discerning, to be brave as a as a fully fledged adult woman? And you know, you can come up with scriptural references that back that up and they're in the book. But really what taught me that was watching my kids. I was mm-hmm. like, and yet they're still connected to me. Yeah. There's still connection, but it does change as we grow. And that was how in the start of the book, in the introduction, I talk about how after the stroke, I asked God, what is it you want from me? Mm-hmm. And that was a little bit of a reversion to that codependency of just like, just tell me what to do. God, yeah. I give up. Yeah. I don't know. And God was like, what do you want? Now that came, the context of that is years of walking with God, yes. of growing right. as an emotional and spiritual being. God's saying, uh-uh, what do you, I'm not playing that game with you no. anymore. Right. What do you want? I've given you a mind. You've honed that mind, you know, and that reminded me a little bit of that's when my 20 year old comes to me and is like, I really need advice. I'm not going to say, you know, I'm, it's going to be different right. how I approach that 20 year old than when they're two. Yes. I'm going to say, let's think about it together. What do you think? Yep. What are some thoughts you have? Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's just our nature with our relationship with God grows. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, that really spoke to me because I've found myself in a stage where I've even used exactly those words. Like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, You know, because I think there is this this obedient person within me that is like, I'm so afraid to get it wrong. And I just want you to tell me what to do. Um, And then there's a, and yet there's an invitation to a relationship of trust and interdependence um, that I think I have not like fully realized in my own experience with God. And that was, that was just a good encouragement to me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Thank, well, you. thank you. I did have one more question for you. Um, I am thinking a lot. I, you know, have um, written a lot and thought a lot about healing, uh, thinking about body, mind, and spirit, which certainly is related to your book, but also thinking about the way in which the healing that we experience within our bodies, minds, and spirits affects our communities and our relationships. And we've touched on this a little bit, but I just wanted to close by asking you how you see this work of healing the self and of understanding the self. How does that open us up for other possibilities for health and healing in our families, in our wider communities? Like how does kind of healing beget healing? Yeah, no, I think it does. I do think um, it's, 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 
not just both and, you know, it's all and. It's we, mm. as we heal ourselves, we bring more healing to our families. We bring more healing to our neighborhoods, our communities. Um, conversely, the more there is healing in other people, the more our our world becomes a place, a, a safer, less toxic place. Um, so, you know, I guess I there's a lot of ways to slice that onion. I think I think the way that I kind really slice it in in the book is this idea of we can we can forget that this work of healing our own self is intimately connected to every relationship that we have mm -hmm. it is how you know we so are so quick to look to how do i heal the marriage or how do i heal the kid or how do i heal the friendship well one component of that is how do i heal myself yeah. so that I can show up in this relationship in a different way, which sometimes, you know, challenges relationships. Um, but I guess in the grand scheme of things, I do believe ultimately, and this is sort of where the faith piece comes in, is that if we really are all created in God's image, and if God really does want each of us to become this truest, deepest God-made self, that somehow as we each do that and learn to live in harmony with each other, that's kind of what heaven is. Right, right. Isn't that the whole thing? Isn't that what it'll be? It's not just that we all just disappear. It's that I'm seeing you as the most beautiful version of who you could possibly mm -hmm. be. I'm showing up as, a, and all of a sudden we show up together as a community in that way. Well, and one of the, um, you know, this is a very well-known passage, but that's been coming up as we've been talking has just been love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And just that sense of all three things are in there, the self love, the neighbor love and the love of God. And the fact that the love of God comes first, I think has as much to do with us understanding God's love for our, for us, as it does giving that love, you know, back to God, but that sense yeah. of, um, love your neighbor as yourself. So, so speaks to what you've been talking about. If we don't know how to love ourselves, if we don't mm -hmm. understand that that's a really, um, mm -hmm. critical component to becoming ourselves as we're meant to be in the world, we won't actually be equipped to love our neighbor. We won't be equipped to, right. uh, be a presence that has um, an ability to participate in healing rather than harm in the world. Um, so there is that that dynamic that for some reason, I think, again, our culture at large, being a woman mm -hmm. and within the church too, um, the self part of the love, for me at least, got lost for a lot of years. And it's been really good to yeah. start to re-understand that and reclaim that. You know, there's the cliche saying that, that you hear all the time, which is hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. Well, we're the hurt people. So, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's, I think what, you know, Jesus's commandment there is, I let, you know, I talk about that all the time is there's implicit that it's, it's almost, if you think about it, it's almost like he's saying the facts will, we will love others as ourselves. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. So if we're filled with shame and rage and un unaddressed wounds and unacknowledged wounds, that's going to be how we show up with other people. Yep. If we're, 
healing and, and learning to show those fruit of the spirit. I talk a lot about the fruit of the spirit. We think about it as putting on toward other people, but learning to be kind to ourselves, learning to be patient with ourselves, mm. learning to be gentle with ourselves, learning to be faithful to ourselves. Yeah. Guess what? We're going to be those things more with other people. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think there's a truth to exactly what you said, like how we show up towards ourselves is how we will show up towards others. Um, but also, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And I think um, people who are healing contribute to healing, right? Like That's there right. Is exactly. A, you know, a, a relationship there that goes the other direction. And I think your, 100%. Book, your book is a contribution to that healing work. So thank mm. you very much for that. And thank you much, very much for your time here today. Thank you. Thanks for such a rich conversation. Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. And I know I said this during the show, but I do want to recommend Allison's newsletter, her podcast, and especially her latest book, The Best of You. We will include links to all of those in the show notes. I also always want to say thank you to Jake Hansen for editing this podcast and to Amber Beery, my social media coordinator who does all the show notes and so much behind the scenes. I'm really grateful for them. I'm also grateful for you for being here, for listening, for sharing this show, for reviewing it, for rating it, for telling other people about it. And I do hope and pray that as you go in your day today, you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.